Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Austin, what's new, man? Yeah. Last week was all about me. So this week, we're going to put you on the hot seat. What that, oh, to? last week was all about you. <laughs> oh, yo, actually, before, I, before I get into this and we get your update, Austin, I just want to point out one thing. One individual that listens to the Rise Podcast messaged me on Instagram and said, I sound like Brandon Turner. And I, I replied to that guy and I was like, dude, this is the biggest compliment I've ever received in my life. Like, that's fucking dope. <laughs> I'm, right, trying to, I'm trying to hear it. I can't hear it. Who do I sound like? You, you, I don't David sound like Green, anyone. Bro. David Green. I, <laughs> anyone. I don't want to be David Green. Everyone knows he's just a sidekick. <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, all right, man. Austin, what have you been up to, man? My side of things. Um, oh, by the way, before. <laughs> I want to do another before we get into it. Uh, with this preamble, a lot of it's like genuine catch up between Mayu and I, because we get a lot of comments on the chemistry. It's like, I'm telling Mayu shit the first time that you probably heard. And it's yeah. going to be the first time you guys as the audience are hearing as well. But I wanted to give an update on my flip. I gave a bunch of updates before, but now it's finally closed. So I think I can be a bit more transparent without like, you know, jinxing anything. Yeah. yeah. Essentially with this flip, I talked about so many different learning lessons, but it was a property that we picked this up. This was a Dundas. Uh, Dundas flip, right? For anyone that yeah, yeah, this is the cool. Dundas flip. So it's a property that we picked up, and it was unique compared to other neighbors because, again, I mentioned this several times. The lot is smaller than what most people expect. You can look out mm-hmm. the window and see the neighbor's window as well. <laughs> it's not a big lot by any means. A um, couple of things that were wrong with the property is is that it had a right away in terms of the driveway. So we don't actually have our driveway. We're using the neighbor's driveway, but we have the right to use it. And the neighbor also owns the part of where we would park the car. That's the part mm. of the right of way. It's all the way. We, we drive okay. through the right of way and go all the way in the back. And that's where we park it. But it kind of falls into the neighbor's lot. So we're going through a back and forth with the neighbor on allowing, that, on allowing us to continue to do it. Because the neighbor was friendly with the old owner, but we're new owners, so they could care less. Mm. And they were building down a fence. Um, and that mean, would mean that we have almost nowhere to park. So we started negotiating with the neighbor, trying to make things work. And there was a lot of other things. There was like some small easements here and there, but we ended up settling with the neighbor and that cost about $25,000 in additional cost. But you don't really have a choice because you're at a point of no leverage. And we were able to negotiate, like the 25 grand wasn't bad in the grand scheme of things. Um, But you guys had it right away. Like like the, 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 the neighbor can't build a fence there, right? They can because it's their property because we're parking there. <laughs> we're parking in the right of way, which is their property. We have the right to kind of use it and access it, but we don't have the right to just park there, right? Uh, it's their property and it does interfere uh, with their usage of land. And if they do sell their property, it will impact their valuation of their property as well. So then there was a lot of the back and forth there. So right there, 25 grand over budget. <laughs> that was quite significant. Damn. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then the property again, unique in nature. Uh, there were a lot of things that went over budget. So this was during COVID and we significantly underestimated the amount of delays things would be. So our kitchen was delayed four weeks, mm. uh, one month, one or I think it might've been two months. I don't remember exactly, but every month was 6K in interest cost. So that mm. could be six to 12K. Throw it in the toilet. So on top of being 25 over budget, you're now like 12K. <laughs> into it when we listed it it took about a month to sell it and a little bit longer closing than we anticipated because it's a very unique property so you could art i think we lost another 10k there from waiting time for interest payments and then we okay so (laughs) hired an engineer i got it as a recommendation from an investor structural engineer we wanted Mm. to build a staircase up to the attic because the original staircase was super steep you cannot really use it you could use it but it's not very safe and it's just awkward. And the engineer went in there, did some drawings and they were like, okay, you can build it here. I gave it to my contractor. Contractor started cutting a hole and he's like, yo, your engineer is a fucking idiot because he, the place he said to put the staircase is at the lowest point of the attic. So you can't even get up because no. the, <laughs> the sloped area. 
and my contract is like the only place you can you put it where it. you can actually get up safely with enough head clearance is is in the middle of the yeah. upstairs which you're blocking the access the to all the bedrooms yeah 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 so i was like oh my god that is terrible so what we ended up doing is, is that we had to spend a lot more money building a spiral staircase which is uh-huh. so like our original staircase was very steep we took it down put it where the original staircase was but spiraled it and you can imagine that's a lot more in cost you guys go like iron i guess you have to go like the iron welding like, no no we iron. went dude like the iron coach were like 25 30 grand yeah so then what did you do though what there's a wood what you could do what yeah yeah so it turned oh, out shit. gorgeous actually believe it or oh, not shit. it was like super sturdy it turned out well by that time we we had to see the cheapest alternative and see if it made sense because yeah. man we're over uh budget by a lot and then we went up to the attic started kind of walking and you know, like kind of like jumping on it just to see how the feel okay. is and it would okay. shake because yeah, you know, someone's going to be living up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like not shake, but it, it's not fully sturdy. And then we started tearing at the contract, starts tearing up the ceilings. And then like, yeah, so you have two by four supporting it. It's not enough support. We have to add some more support throughout they the entire ceiling. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had, yeah, exactly. So um, we had to do that throughout the entire ceilings everywhere, which ended up costing extra couple thousand as well yeah and we weren't planning we weren't budgeting for the ceiling so that was another pain in the ass then a skunk went in the a skunk during yeah. during showings started appearing <laughs> in a, <laughs> dude like this is i'm telling you what a shit show a skunk started appearing and we're like oh my god fuck and now a skunk is here and the showings like you don't want to you don't want a skunk anywhere near site during your show yeah yeah so i had to get a hunt what do you call i forgot it it's not pest control but it's like a capture and release company which is hella fucking expensive and it's not guaranteed and believe it or not it takes like five days for those capture and release programs to work because they leave sort of like traps and once how, they much, capture, it it, how much does that cost I don't, it costs like 400 bucks but it's oh, okay. over five days over five days 400, 400 every day, day but okay, 400 yeah. bucks five days non-guaranteed not guaranteed yeah, yeah, you're gonna capture yeah. it right Cause it's not like uh like bugs or anything. They it's they can't kill it. It's not ethical. <laughs> so they have to capture yeah. it and release it. And a lot of the time they don't release it far enough from the property line. It usually comes back to the property line anyways. Because That's they fun. don't take it to move it to the forest or anything. And the last thing here, I, I, on top of this entire shit show, like three days before closing. So our cistern is above great so a cistern is basically a holding tank of water oh, yeah. so your water can come from the well it could come from the municipal line or it can come from a cistern a huge tank almost all houses have your cistern dug on the base on the ground it's underground so it doesn't freeze right it's below yeah. frost level um the cistern here was in the garage there's two cisterns mm. and the property was sold okay cool not a big deal and the buyers went for a revisit and they're like, yo, there's no water anywhere. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So what's going on? We got the plumber in there and yeah. So no, not the line froze. The cisterns above great. So the fucking water froze in the cistern. Oh, and it's what like, the heck is the solution to that? What yeah, was the so solution? Then we, had, we had to get a bunch of radiators. There's no easy solution. You get a bunch of radiators. But what was the seller doing before? Yeah, they had radiators, but we weren't aware of these things, um, right? We weren't aware of how they were yeah. handling the situation. The sell, it was actually in the state sale. Yeah, so the, seller oh, okay, pa- okay. Uh, the seller passed away. And this was the, I think, the sister or something. <laughs> yeah, so we. Had- <laughs> this is, You're not so going to be able to speak in this podcast, Hawaii, but we had radiators <laughs> all around to heat it. Um, and we got most of it thawed out. And the pump, which pumps the water from the cistern over to the rest of the house, that burnt out as well because it was pumping nothing. So it's just working uh, overtime pumping air that burst. So we have to replace that. And that was all that was yesterday. That was the last two days before closing. So I was just on the phone, just trying to get it all solved. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that was the experience with the flip all in all. Um, I was projecting a pretty massive loss on this thing. Cause it was just a fucking oh, okay. shit show. Right. Um, you were, you were projecting for like from the beginning, you were projecting a loss. No, 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 no. One thing, you know, as soon as the lawyers came in and there was a delay in the kitchen, I was like, yeah, it's probably not, <laughs> not going to make a profit. We had a step, we had originally projected a 70K profit on this thing. Yeah. Um, and then that's with, with private, private money. money. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. healthy. Yeah. That's pretty, yeah, yeah. But then here's the thing, right? Like now your purchase price has gone down, right? Because like it's too unique of a property. And yeah, yeah. 
it's it's funny is like you start finding the, these things out when you start listing up how unique it is and how much it makes a difference in valuation so it got appraised for 1.1 million dollars but mm. appraisals are not market value uh, mm-hmm. you're dealing with a luxury <laughs> product so it ended up selling at 930k right Ooh. which was actually our worst case scenario in our analysis uh, not worst case scenario a, low, a little lower than our worst case scenario in our analysis and we had like a 70k profit margin but 930 was much lower than what we we're anticipating again appraised at 1.1 million all of these extra costs accumulated and man like you're looking at close to six figures and then of course some things went over budget but we projected for that but a lot of things went over budget here and there on the reno side too like whether that be materials labor yeah. for small things that came up so we ended up at a loss that i think it's probably negative twenty thousand. that's um, not bad you know that's what? Bad. Okay. You know, over two. <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting for the number. And I'm like, oh, this is gonna be pretty fucked up. You yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know what? Like, it's the good thing is we got a. I'm not even gonna say it's a great deal because of all of these things that panned up. But you bought at the right price, and yeah. a bunch of things like the worst things that people would never ever recover from from a flip, like easements, this, that, whatever. No parking, like the worst things. We just got it at such a discount. Just the reason probably why there's a discount yeah. that we were able to minimize our losses because the average flipper probably would have lost negative like more than 70, 80 K. Cause a lot of it was you negotiation. Guys, you need to negotiate did, with the neighbor too. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you guys go hundred percent loan to value on this? Like we went way over a hundred. Everything was levered. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. We're levered. Okay. We're we're leveraged from Renault's and the Renault's are over a hundred thousand. We were you, you bought this for like six something, I think, right? I don't remember. Exactly. Bought it for six eighty. Yeah, I mean, what we thought would be like an 80, 90K in Breno ended up like including legals and all this extra shit that happened. It probably ended up closer to like 170. So it went up 100, right? So all things considered with a negative 20 loss, I yeah. I mean, I don't feel the worst. <laughs> I think yeah, that was yeah. a win. It was a learning it's, not, it's not bad. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's honestly not bad. Um, yeah, yeah. Learning experience. You, you got to do a flip. So are you going to keep flipping? That becomes a real question. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, you know what? Because this go. is the thing. Like, I don't think, like, this is bad. This is, it's this a, was a terrible experience. This is a lot of work to be losing money. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same reason but, Matt, Matt, I think Matt Pichet actually was always like, guys, like, don't start off flipping, right? Because if you made this 20K loss in your first year of real estate investing, you would have been like, yo, fuck this shit, right? Like, yeah. especially your first deal would have been terrible. Right. This now at this point for you is, is, is like not that bad. No, no, it was. Yeah, exactly. I got some wins from it too. Like I got the contractor I'm using right now. Um, what else is there? Uh, kitchen company. I found a, a better kitchen supplier um, mm. from that. I, yeah, there was a couple of wins that came from it. Not too much, but it was a learning experience. Ultimately, yeah. um, I think we can just, <laughs> I know I, I hijacked this entire preamble, but we can. Last week was all me, but uh, yeah, let's transition to our guests this week. Let's do it. Why don't you do the transition now? Because I just ended up speaking the entire time. <laughs> all right. So, so this week we've got Jared on. Jared's been investing in real estate for for quite some time. He, he started, um, I think it was eight or eight or nine years ago, but really it's more so he picked up in the last kind of two to three years. Talked a lot about uh, the different market he's investing in. So he's investing currently in Peterborough and Cornwall. Uh, he's doing the conversion strategy in Peterborough. He is leaving to become full-time, or I think he is full-time in real estate investing right now and flipping as well. As part of that, he sorts, talks about sourcing his own deals, getting creative, what, why the conversion strategy works so well in Peterborough. Overall, Jared's just uh, he's a really smart guy. He's been investing in real estate for a long time. So make sure you guys check out this episode. And um, yeah, if any of you guys are interested in investing in Peterborough, I would definitely shoot Jared a message. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Jared. Jared, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here with a couple of Corey McKinnon students. <laughs> yeah. So, Jared, I guess for a couple of our, our listeners that might not know you, uh, why don't you give everyone a, a quick kind of background on yourself? Yeah. Um, born and raised in Montreal. Started real estate investing about 10 years ago, very passively. I started out in Niagara Falls. I just bought a couple of condos thinking... What's the worst that could happen? They were tenant occupied. And uh, I learned a hard lesson after that, but uh, I don't regret anything. And basically from there, I, I joke around, I did sort of a golden horseshoe where I really went from like Niagara Falls, Hamilton, St. Catharines, or really, uh, and now I've wound it up in um, Peterborough. And that's, that's my main market today. 
But I, just to do a quick recap, um, you know, started 10 years ago with those two condos and then, you know, refied them a few years after once there was some appreciation. But I only really dug in hard to real estate investing about four years ago, I'd say, when I started, you know, educating myself about the Burr method, started networking because we have these fantastic groups and it's so accessible, the information and uh, everyone sharing their success and their challenges. So I really feed off of that. So um, I've really only kicked into gear the last few years. So uh, that brings me up to speed to today. That's awesome, man. It's good that you had a couple of assets early on in your career because I found like even with Mai, when he got started in his journey, he had one strong asset appreciated in value and that like kickstarts the journey, right? Where you start learning these other strategies and really escalating and growing your portfolio. Yeah, you yeah, get one and, and you want 10 after, like once you start realizing how, uh, not necessarily how easy it is, but how scalable it is when um, you you know what to look for. Yeah. And essentially just recycling your capital. Once you learn that scale, then it completely game changes, right? So you said the first properties you bought were in Niagara and they were two condos, right? That's right. And so what was your plan with those two condos? Were you living out there? Um, were you, I mean, I don't know if Airbnb was a big thing back then, but um, what no. were you doing with those condos? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I was actually living in Ottawa and it was from a friend of a friend saying, hey, there's this uh, real estate investment opportunity. I'm buying one or two of them. And he wasn't trying to sell me on it. It wasn't like a referral type thing. So I dug into it. And what I really liked about it is that it cash flow and I didn't have to deal with any of the property management. So I don't know about you guys but at the beginning, but I never wanted to either really manage properties myself or I was always petrified of buying something. Great. You got this great property. Fantastic. Now how are you going to get a tenant? Like I was always super yeah. apprehensive about the tenant, how you kick them out if they're not paying your rent and what happens if they don't pay your rent and all that. So um, it seemed to be mitigated risk when the tenant, you know, the tenant was already there paying their rent. And I was like, what's the, the worst that can happen? So that's why I, I dove into those two 10 years ago, knowing now, you know, we, everyone wants everything vacant, vacant, vacant. We get to pick and choose exactly who we want. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and the are you still hold those in your portfolio out of curiosity? Or you ended up No, no. Sold the last one yeah. about four years ago. Not enough, enough equity buildup. You know what? I actually look back and just to see sales, I'm sure you guys do the same. <laughs> oh, that's the we worst. Do, we do. <laughs> no, but it's okay with condos because they haven't depreciated the same way single family has. So yeah. I, I look at it and it's like maybe 5%, 7% a year instead of the, the higher numbers we've been seeing. Look, it would have still been great. But the point is, it would have been a mistake to hold and not get mm -hmm. into single family. And not, not redeploy it essentially. Yeah. And I totally understand what you're saying about the, uh, the tenant side, right? Like I remember my first property that I was managing was actually my, my girlfriend's at the time, not, not my wife, but her property out in Newcastle. And it was, I think we needed like $2,000 or something like that to break even. And I was like, well, who the heck is going to pay me $2,000 a month to, to break even on this? I'm like, I'm, I'm basically going to be losing money every single month. I posted it on Kijiji. Someone called me up and she's like, Hey, like I'll, I'll pay this. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, you're going to give me this $2,000 a month. And she's like, yeah, like, I love the house. And I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> if you insist, like we're, I guess we're good to go. And obviously, I was a bad tenant and screwed me over in the long run, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, Jared, so, so where did you go from uh, those two? Like, you started off with the two condos in Naga. And I guess at that time, um, I don't know how old you were or anything like that, but like, you know, how did you afford to put the down payment? And then how did you continue to scale after that? I had a good earnings year in my job 10 years ago. It was um, internet advertising and it was commission only, which I negotiated and had a really big year, you know, or relatively speaking, and I had enough for two down payments. So it was literally that I, I, I saved up every penny, um, no friends, family support like that. And I, I encourage anyone who can, you know, get that down payment to, to go ahead and do that. But uh, I um, had a, a couple of good years and I, I put that money to an investment because I, I didn't really have, uh, really have a good use for it other than investing. And I was always curious about real estate investing. So I, I saved it up and I know that's tough to do, especially now, but that's what I did. I saved it. Yeah. And wages, as much as real estate and down payments have gone up, honestly, wages have gone up for a good amount of people, especially if you're not like as much, <laughs> not as much, but it's definitely like I, in the mortgage space, I see some, some individuals incomes and I'm like, yeah, like you guys are in good money, especially in sales, like that kind of stuff is good money out there. So that's yeah. cool. And then um, you said you moved into your investments, I guess, a couple of years later, like you really started focusing on, on that and you refinanced those ones in, 
In yeah, I, I refinanced and I don't want to make this focus just because we sort of looped around to in several different markets, which I would dissuade your audience from doing that to jumping into multiple markets and trying to figure out this, especially at the beginning. It's OK to make mistakes. I'm not saying don't don't take the dive. But what I did was I bought single family in Hamilton, but I bought in um, rougher neighborhoods, had tenant issues. And then uh, I quickly went to St. Catharines where I couldn't legally duplex the basement. <laughs> So long story short, really do your due diligence on exactly what neighborhood you're in. I know that sounds obvious, but Hamilton at that point, this was 2016. So it was just booming as much as it is today. And the truth is these homes look decent. The area didn't look too bad. And, you know, another mistake I did make was buying on a budget. You know, was it Grant Cardone who says never buy on a budget? Like I was looking to buy the cheapest property. I'm like, well, how can this go wrong? Your taste changes over time. <laughs> your risk tolerance can increase, but it's it's helpful when you have that experience and you know what you're getting into. And to buy multi-units like that, I think is the lower risk, but single family in a rough neighborhood, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So I own a couple of rental properties in a bad neighborhood and during renos, they've all had break-ins. <laughs> Mike can attest because some of them we own together, some of them I own myself, okay. and they, they've had break-ins, and it's not fun because those costs add up. And yeah, I mean, the number, so numbers say one story, right? In your rough neighborhoods, your cash flow is always going to be better, but it doesn't say the true story of things like bad debt expense where they might not pay, tenant turnover, thrashing the place, break-ins, there's so much other costs associated with it. It would break my heart if someone starts out with that and then they have that very rough experience. They have extreme negative or just maybe for them life-changing negative cash flow because if they literally have their life savings on this property, it's it's a bad way to begin because you're you're turned off from real estate and that can really just crush your trajectory, right? So that's why it's better to be safe at the beginning, invest in good neighborhoods. And then if you want to take risks later on, well, you usually have the... Uh, the backing or a portfolio to do it, you can afford to lose a bit of cash flow, a bit of vacancy. Uh, you can stomach that when you've got a few properties, right? That are cash flowing. Yeah. So you you had a couple of rough experiences after your condos. What was the decision making factor to continue investing and settling down? I assume Peterborough was your next choice, right? That's where you really grew your investment portfolio in. Yeah, that's right. So my couple experiences with a single family is like great, but there was appreciation in both markets, like there's been everywhere, no, no secret there. But the volatile cash flow, that variance was very difficult to manage mentally. So I said, well, I actually heard I was looking in, in Oshawa because I'm, I'm from Montreal and it's actually closer. So to be on this side of the GTA helps. And in, in Oshawa, I was actually looking there, but there was no cash flow. And then my awesome real estate agent who's now in Costa Rica, Rob Brake, said, hey, Jared, Come check out Peterborough. And I think I was the first guy, if not the second, that he said, let's let's go and see this place. Cause I would I said I can't make the numbers work here in Oshawa. The rents are too low given the property prices and whatnot. And I began in 2017 in Peterborough with two single families that I bought them as three bed, two bath, added three bedrooms each one, rented them out to student students, crazy demand, filled them all up very fast, and said to myself, why I've been waiting so long to do this because like, I don't have one tenant that moves out. Yeah. I'm going to have, you know, some months I'm going to have variance among months based on leases and whatnot, but I never really uh, struggled collecting rent, renting it to students. And those two places really paved the way for doing burrs later on. Once the, the city permitted the, the legal dwelling in the basement. Gotcha. No, I was just going to say, so you were primarily in student housing first um, yeah. and I guess how many of those student housing type properties do you, did you accumulate? Was it the two where you, I guess, had 12 beds then, or did you continue to grow that portfolio? Exactly. So I had two in a nice area and I still own those two today. They're actually still student rentals today, but I'll be converting them likely this year, you know, getting, getting oh. all the leases out, incentivizing them, probably sign an N11 and I'll either rent it out as a very nice single family. Cause now I have a, no, I have the confidence. It's a really nice neighborhood. I'm saying I have the confidence in terms of the uh, the cash flow will be there. So, you know, um, basically due diligence on whoever's applying, they'll have to make decent income because it's a nice area of town. I'm not sure if you've had this where over the last five years, places that were okay were now, they're higher, highly desirable. So now I've got like five or six students and look, 
in living in what looks like a rundown home, I never wanted it to look run down, but at the same time, I'm not really incentivized to pump up its value. Can't refi it. I'm using it as a student rental, so it's going to get knocked anyway, right? So, so why go from a student rental to a family rental, though? Because like student rental would must still be more cash, though, I'm assuming. You know what? No, because for really? guys like me that are outsourcing property management, I can, I'll pay the lease up to get a qualified family. I'll take care of the rest. They're going to pay their, their utilities. And between the eight month leases and that kind of you know, variance in terms of lease length and turnover, not worth it. I, I think I'll do much better single family. Now, I, I'm saying that because I'm in a specific part of town where I can probably charge 3,000, 3,200 plus utilities. Yeah, like I, I think that's a really good point. What erodes student rental turnover is that if you're leasing it out to a property management company and they're constantly charging you again and again for turnover. That's that's yeah. like 50%, sometimes up to 100% of one month's rent. So it can it can really add up in cost. 500 bucks in utilities to a month. You yeah. want a water bill? Yeah. That's six people in your place. You'll get a water bill. The city keeps saying that, uh, you know, that there's got to be a leak or something. And I, I've already done it a hundred times. There's no leak. There's just there's six people in there and they're showering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so I guess if you had it as a family, you could probably go the conversion route, but two units in there as well, which would then in theory make you even more capital because right now it's six bedrooms, which is actually pretty good for a student rental. But then yeah, even if you charge 600 per room, that's about like $3,600 versus maybe if you had two units in there, you could probably get it north of four, depending on how it is. Right. So from there, you went into the conversion strategy. And what does a conversion strategy look like in Peterborough now? Like, what are some numbers? If you don't mind sharing like a deal that you've done or something like that, that would be, I'm sure, good for a lot of our guests. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the last few I bought are all at $450,000. Okay. Okay. Now, you know, I'm, I'm getting off market. I'm, I'm getting deals, but let's just say the average would be between five and 550. Um, okay. So we're looking at buying it at five or 550 and then probably putting in around 100 or more, depending on the, the quality of the upstairs unit. And then right now I've heard of appraised refinances of 750 plus. Um, we would go from seven, seven, 750 if you're in the right neighborhood lower, if you're closer to downtown. But uh, those are the general numbers we're looking at. So I obviously do my best to, to get a deal add as much value as I can and then refinance it within six months. So you're leaving about like a five to 10% net investment. It sounds like, right. Cause if you're, if a normal person, not yourself, uh, but if a normal person was buying at 550, they're spending hundred K in it. Uh, they're all in it basically for 650 overly simplifying, but whatever. And then now it's worth about 750. That's about hundred K left. So you're leaving um, around 10% ish. I think based on my rough mental math, um, and what is that? What is something like that cash flow? Like, well, how much can it be rented out for on a per unit basis? Um, and then what would that cash flow turn into? Yeah. So you'll get 2,200 upstairs, 18 downstairs. Um, in my case, I pay, I pay for all the utilities. You know, they, sometimes you can work out a split at times if they're, if you can work that into the lease, but I don't mind things simple as long as there's no abuse and um, something like that for a guy like me, who's outsourcing property management will be, well, it'll be like a thousand dollars if you don't refi it, and once you refi it, it'll be about four or five hundred dollars, right? Which is still not bad, not bad at all, actually. That no, is pretty good. more than I was yeah. expecting. I think it's similar to Oshawa, and Oshawa, like the rents have actually been consistently similar to Oshawa. It might be a slightly higher in Oshawa, and Peterborough's always been like ten percent cheaper, always a hundred thousand dollars less expensive. Now probably two hundred less on the buy, right? Yeah. Now bungalows and Oshawa are going for what, eight, nine and up? Yeah. Well, you know what's crazy about that is my, my bungalow in Scarborough is basically yeah. rented out oh, for the course. exact same numbers that you're getting in Peterborough, which is crazy. Um, and it's really good given the, the purchase price or the after repair value of Peterborough would be a, a lot lower, right? So much more cash flow there for sure. Um, I actually think that's where the opportunity really lies. So, like, even in Windsor, uh, I wholesale the deal uh, to Jared in Windsor, him and his partner. But even in Windsor, like the rents, what I've noticed is identical to Sudbury. I've actually gotten higher rents in Sudbury for wow. some properties and the purchase price in Sudbury is significantly cheaper. Right. So it's like, oh man, like this is kind of a no brainer. You're getting equivalent or higher rent rolled. So better cash flow at significantly discounted prices. 
Yep, yeah. it's true. And part of that is minimum wage is the same all across Ontario, right? So whether you live in Peterborough or in Toronto, if you're a minimum wage tenant, and then, you know, everyone is just slightly above that, right? But what are some of the pain points that you're dealing with in your kind of investment strategy, right? Just being centric to Peterborough, um, what's kind of the, the market like out there? Just like everywhere, it's, it's very hot. There's very little inventory. Uh, I would say that the challenges now are finding the deal. And then once you do, cities can be slower on the permits, building materials. There's a long lag for lead. There's a long lead time on certain materials. So in what I could normally do in three to four months, I, I'm just budgeting for six. So, you know, I've got a few joint venture partners. And at first I say, hey, look, you know, I get this done in three or four months. But the truth is now there's just, we're, we're in a different world. Um, the cities have variants in terms of their timing as well as building materials and contractors are tougher to find. So I, of course, I've got my, my main core group, but they take other jobs as well. And I've got to expand my uh, contracting network. I've got a couple other guys, but it really helps to have a GC that knows exactly what they're doing. You say, Hey, I'm handing you the keys. When you hand them back, it's all done, including appliances. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing is that once you find one of those guys, they don't last around too long. Maybe you have a year with them and you're like, shit, I know, I know after a year, everyone's going to find out about them. (laughs) Yeah. And that's okay because there's other people doing it. But the truth is you'll, you build that loyalty by uh, lining up the next project as soon as one's done. So that's what I'm doing. My guy doesn't have to look for work. You at least want to be easy to work with, pay them quickly and line up the next job right after. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better you can do for a contractor. They don't want to have to advertise for the next job or ask around if they, they already have it. I try to line up closing, um, you know, completion dates with, with new projects as best I can. Yeah, I know that that's definitely a good strategy to go about that. Keep them loyal. So where are you right now in your journey? Uh, I know you're buying aggressively. You bought a couple from me. You're buying from other wholesalers. You're buying with your yeah. agent. How many properties are you at now and how are you scaling now? Cause I know it's not all of your own money anymore. Yeah. So I'm at about 20. Uh, I might be a little over because some of them I'm going to start flipping. So in terms of my journey, I'm starting to flip now. I didn't before, but now in terms of just being full-time in real estate, uh, it doesn't make sense to work a job anymore uh, as I'm leaving a lot of money on the table when it comes to the opportunity in in flipping and eventually wholesaling, which I'm interested in, but I, I just can't do everything all at once. So what I do now, for example, is in my main market, Peterborough, or any other market where I have connections, I'll, I'll look for a, an easy cosmetic flip. I've got the financing, I've got the capital to make it happen. And if it doesn't work out, then I still know the ARV and it's very unlikely that I'll lose money on anything. So, you know, I do do my due diligence, but I'm sticking to, you know, when I'm entering other markets, like for example, Windsor last year, uh, but my, my main go-to will still remain to be Peterborough. And it, it's fun now that I don't have to always look for the raised bungalow, right? It can be something downtown, which I wouldn't consider buying before. Even if it's a more expensive house that just hasn't been uh, well-maintained, that's another opportunity for me as well. So I like that I've got a, a larger scope of, uh, of attractive work to take advantage of. And I'm having fun, right? It's awesome. It's been, a, it's been a journey, I guess, for you to get to this point. But um, there's two things, and I guess we should have asked this earlier on. Do you live in Peterborough now? No, I live in Montreal. Oh, okay. And I don't plan do? on ever moving to Peterborough. Not okay. but a lovely town. Lovely town. <laughs> 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 you know, if I, if I do, I'm running for mayor. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So, so you're doing this long distance. Um, and yeah. I guess that's why, in, in theory, you could also do it in a, in a couple other markets, especially if you're jumping into this full time. Um, yeah. And I guess this goes into kind of some of the questions that we ask at the end as well, but like, what, what's, what's your overall goal, right? I know you left your job to jump into real estate full time. Um, and I know you're entering into flipping. Um, yeah. When you say flipping, are you flipping these houses yourself? Um, or is your role more so on the investing side? Um, are you hiring people to help facilitate like this? Like it's essentially a new venture, right? So I'm just kind of curious how that transition has been for you into real estate full time. It's a new venture, but I'm using the same contacts to execute a different outcome, right? So I'm getting deals from the same realtors or the same methods of finding these off markets. I'm using some of the same contractors to do the work. Mm. And I've got a pretty simple policy. It might change, but it, you know, if a realtor helps me get a deal, I'm like, look, I'm going to flip it. You're, you're going to get the listing yeah. on the out. On the out. 
And I'm transparent with all the realtors that I work with. I say, hey, <laughs> it's such a Canadian thing to say, hey, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, my strategy is if you give me the deal, I'll, I'll sell it with you if I flip it. It's very simple. So they get they make money on the way in. They make money on the way out. I don't want to be put on a portal. I probably know Peterborough better than most realtors do. Mm -hmm. So the value is finding something that doesn't go to multiple offers, something that needs a lot of work, something that uh, requires a cash closing quickly. Those are the opportunities that I think we all look for as investors. And um, but to get back to your question what's the strategy the strategy is to, to build a bank account with flipping because i always joke that i'm a broke investor right all my money is always in my properties and so i need to start building a bank account to get liquidity and in conjunction do jvs where there's opportunities and where, where i see a property that makes most sense as a long-term buy and hold great neighborhood fantastic second suite potential yeah. those like i mean i can flip them but i don't want to it's like it's it's a waste of a the waste of a flip or someone else can convert it after, but I really like buying and holding them. And I, I think those are the, the most attractive um, houses to buy because you, so, you can add a second income and just hold it. So are, are you, and I know you said you're doing the joint ventures for your buy and holds, but are you doing JVs for flips as well? No, I'm, I'm very curious on as to how it's structured. It seems that a lot of people have a 50, 50 where some, buy, I say whoever, finds the deal uh, and may provide the financing. And then one guy does all the work and they split the profit. I've, I've heard of different um, structures. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm not necessarily looking for JV partners on flips, but I'm not opposed to it. It's just, I need to start learning what takes up the most time and money. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I guess you're, like, you're you tell me, you tell me, I mean, does it make sense? Uh, <laughs> everyone, everyone has different opinions on exactly. this. I think the general consensus is that for a lot of people, it doesn't because you're paying 50% of the profit, whereas it just makes sense to pay a bit more interest if you get private money, right? Oh, um, totally. So, yeah. so yeah. speaking of that, actually, like, how are you funding these deals? Is it a lender bank? Are you private financing, cash? Private, just private. What are you finding the differences between burring and flipping? Because it's okay to leave 20 or 30K in a deal in a burr not okay to lose 20 or 30 grand on a flip. But even if you I, left 20K in a burr, you would make money on a flip. No, because yes, you pay 5% yes, yes. realtor fees. Yeah, okay, it depends on the purchase price, but a 700K purchase or after a pair value, you'd still be making money. On Very price. marginal. It's like not even worth flipping in that point. Oh, you guys are such geeks. <laughs> yeah, this is being awesome because we're taking away Jared's spot. You, yeah. you know, you know, I say that in the in the best way, but I, you're 100 percent right. Where you want to be on one side of the margin, or the other. So my my rule, and look, I've just begun the process, but I've seen enough to know what makes money, and I have to be very confident in my after repair value. That to me, and my you you made a great post I saw the other day. I think it's buying you know whatever it is, 20 or 30 percent below, and how you relate that to the ARV, that mm. makes sense as well. I think that for me, if I understand the ARV without any exaggeration, and I know what the project needs to go into it, then I'll simply say it needs to be this price or less. And I'm not looking at making anything less than 50K on a flip, not worth the, the hassle if the market turns, that's a lot of stress for nothing. Right. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking for those opportunities. I, I think it has to do with understanding your market really well and the after repair value. I think that's the, the best place to start. Uh, and then you just work backwards from there, right? Then you have to execute. But private money is expensive. Cost me 30, yeah. 40 grand to buy these little properties after lender or broker legal fees on both ends. But that's the game. So you better have lift. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what, no, I was just going to say, what concerns me is like, I, I know a good amount of people that flip, they use bank financing, right? So then of course your numbers are going to be like in a deal where you're making 50 grand, you would instead now make, I don't know, call it 80 grand. Right. Um, but it, there's a certain limit to that. It's not always sustainable. It's, it's, yeah. you know, not the best approach then if you get into flipping. But don't they cut you off? I, I didn't know about that before, but don't they cut you off in the sense that you can't, you know, RBC doesn't want you buying and flipping homes at 1.5% interest, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Here they don't. My, you no, know, like, it's, yeah. <laughs> like the, it's kind of like a, um, it depends. If you do one flip in one year, 
you know, like nothing's going to happen. But here's the thing, yeah, Maya, yeah. what if you explicitly okay. tell them I'm flipping the house? They're going to be like, oh, no. no. So they don't want you to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't want you to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a planned flip. Is what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so funny. Yeah. Investors are always trying to find a way to, to save a couple thousand bucks. It's hilarious. I, I guess when you guys are saying, um, when you're mentioning regular bank financing, the second I hear that, it just triggers that's a buy and hold. And it would be dumb just based on the mortgage. Like, I really truly believe with interest rates now, the mortgage is an asset. So the second you have that, hold it. Hold it for five years. See what happens. Yeah. You know, if you buy right, and then you don't have to flip something. Just hold it if you're able to get the mortgage and then yeah, that, flip, flip when you don't get the mortgage. Yeah. And, and I think we, we'd all kind of agree that, you know, ultimately holding real estate is what's made us the most, most oh, wealth, yeah. right? Um, like a, a random flip here and there. Yes. It, it does get in a good quick cash injection, but um, it's not always a 50 K or 80 K profit on a flip. Sometimes it's like a 20, 30 K and like that same asset, like you said, I think earlier in the podcast, you, you start to look back at, Hey, what did that like thing that I sold off like two years ago go for now? And it's like, fuck. <laughs> and it's okay if you sold it to, to get it yourself into a better asset. That's what I've yeah. sort of done as I looped around the golden horseshoe, right? I yeah. sort of needed to figure out a, a structure that was repeatable that I could stick with. Yeah. And um, yeah. so no regrets there, but I think the idea is if, if you're selling a buy and hold, it's because there's a, clearly a better opportunity and you're okay with paying the capital gains cut tax because you know that this new opportunity is, is worth it and it's a buy and hold as well. So, um, well, you know, when we're talking about selling, it's not like selling at all and going on vacation. For sure. For exactly. sure. So let's, let's take a bit down into the joint venture space. Um, we know you have a couple of JV partners. Um, how has that been like? How were you first and foremost introduced into that space? How are you going about raising capital? Like, are you using Facebook, social media? What strategies are you using to attract capital? And what is your joint venture structure like? Because everyone kind of does it a bit differently. Yeah. So in terms of uh, finding an attractive, attracting, <laughs> finding an attractive joint venture fund, attracting uh, JV money, you know, I just share uh, my experiences, what I'm doing, where I believe the real opportunities with are with professionals who are busy with uh, making a high income in their nine to five. They've got families to take care of. They don't want to get into real estate. Uh, they they want to. They don't want to get into owning real estate themselves. They want someone else to deal with the hassle. That's where I find there's a fit. If you have someone who has free time and wants to learn, then I don't think it's the, the right fit because they'll end up saying, "Well, I can do that." And the truth is, truth is they could, but are they going to put the time to do it? And they don't have your experience where you're you're going to make those. Uh, you're just going to make better decisions on all aspects of acquiring the asset. But long story short, I've got family members, friends, and people on social media that reach out wanting to know what I'm doing, what kind of projects uh, are coming up. And if I click, if there's a, if there is an opportunity, if they're, if they're, they're like-minded, then it, it makes sense. But one thing I'm crystal clear on is that it's a, it's a, three to five year hold minimum. I'm not in the flipping game for buying holds. There's a lot of work that goes in to these deals up front, And there's always the opportunity for me to buy them privately and hold them for a year. Although that's not so much fun with the cash flow, but there is always that alternative. So it's not as though I need joint venture money. <laughs> it's, it's less risk on my end because it doesn't drain my bank account. And, um, you know, it's gotta be a win-win for, for both parties. So. I've had fun with it. I think I've got uh, five JVs right now. My goal is to get five more this year with different partners. And we're already repeating with existing JV partners uh, and started in Cornwall. So that's interesting. Uh, bought a triplex there in December. Uh, Cornwall's only an hour east, sorry, west of Montreal. And it's a very affordable market. So I think big things are happening there and it's very accessible. So having fun with that. I do want to quickly talk about the Cornwall market because you're probably our first guest I think that we've had on here. I know we're running out of time here, so I'm just going to keep it quick. What do you see in the Cornwall market from a fundamentals perspective, like economics? Um, and I know it's a big um, renter's market, but how do you find the tenant profile is? And just give us a quick rundown on, I guess, the numbers behind a deal. And so I know no, so, yeah, <laughs> no, no, okay. So the, no surprise, it's a working class tenant profile, so it can be rough. Where what Cornwall really has going for it is it's one hour from Montreal where housing is unaffordable. It's one hour south of Ottawa 
also unaffordable. You can get probably the same house for about half the price. And when I say half, I'm not joking. A million dollar house will be 500,000 at the same quality level in Cornwall. So it's going to attract commuters. It's going to attract people who want to raise families who are sick of living in condos. And, you know, it's close to the border. It's along the 401. To me, that's enough. I mean, of course, you want big major employers to come. And apparently uh, manufacturing is building there. I saw a new, um, I used to be in manufacturing sales. And I noticed CMP was one of our clients, just bought a brand new building there. So in, in my general logic, affordability will always attract money, especially now. So what attracted me at, at the very beginning was just the rent of value. I mean, buying duplexes for $180,000. Now those are going to be rough, but you can buy a nice one for three. Where else can you do that? Maybe Sudbury or you're going further up North, but I'm talking about the 401. Right. Yep. No, that totally makes sense. Um, it, I think it's the same effect that you see in Toronto, right? A lot of people can't afford Toronto. So I actually know a lot of employees in downtown Toronto who live in Hamilton, which is about an hour away from downtown. And I'm sure it's probably a similar situation in big cities like Montreal and Ottawa, as you said. Okay, Jared, I want to kind of get into the numbers of Cornwall. We've wholesaled a couple deals there and the property value there was really cheap. I have no idea what the rental market is like. So with your triplex, what kind of numbers are you projecting? How much did you pick it up for? How much are you going to rent it out? And what's the ARB? Yeah. So I guess I'm going backwards because at the beginning of my journey, I said that I bought tenant occupied places in Niagara Falls and two of those condos. So what's tricky in, in Cornwall is finding something that's vacant. This is a triplex that's fully occupied. However, it has close to market rents and that's why I bought it. So there's basically one townhome and then two, two bedrooms. The townhome, I call it townhome because it's literally three levels and we could finish the basement. That's only renting for 850 or 900 plus utilities. Wow. So with wow. turnover there, we're looking at $1,500 a month. Okay. And then the other two units are renting for about uh, 900 a piece and market rents in these, these, they are nicer two bedrooms would go for about $1,200 each. So there's a significant lift on turnover and um, we purchased it for 385,000 in December. So just a few months ago. Mm. So it's just before the January grace. <laughs> Is that all it takes six weeks and you look like a genius now? I mean, it was, <laughs> I went into the place and I'm like, some, someone's missing something. It has very ugly siding. So we need to do the siding, but that's, you know, that's curb appeal. That's not like structural. Um, we could actually renovate one of the basements and turn into another suite. We're, we're looking at doing that only once like rents really get in and we see more people do it and the city legalize it. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun opportunity. Yeah. So even as it is, I'm sure it's cash flowing you like a decent amount, like m- might not be anything too crazy, but once it's fully turned over, that's like, I don't even know how much of a lift. I feel like it was almost a thousand dollars in lift right there on a monthly basis. That would be a good cash injection. So that sounds like it's uh, yeah. really good numbers. Yeah. Cash flow is about 700 a month right now. As is. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. One thing that's also great about uh, Cornwall is property taxes are very low for the time mm-hmm. being right now. I think we pay $2,000 in property tax where another municipality, same property would be at least 4,000 a year. Those little things make a difference. Because the assessed value is essentially just having caught up, I guess. And, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Awesome. Okay. Awesome, Jared. So I think that's great. I think we covered uh, a lot about your your backstory, how you got started investing, and then really um, dove into Peterborough. The numbers there sound pretty good. And then at the end, the, the, the bombshell about Cornwall, those numbers sound even better. So, um, yeah. you know, and got to you getting into flipping. I guess we'll have to touch back in a year after you've done a bunch and just- For sure. Then. But Jared, I guess at this point, we'd like to ask our guests kind of two, two questions. We're changing it up this year a little bit from last year. But the first question is, uh, where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, personal business goals, et cetera. Five years from now. Five years from now, I plan on having my own wholesaling team, my own flipping team, and probably another 10, 20 JVs. Hmm. But just basically expanding those three revenue streams. And finally, hiring employees. I mean, we're, we tend to be one-man shows in this game. I know you guys have grown a lot and really it's inspiring to see what you guys have done um, because it's just not easy, right? You're trying to accomplish so much on your own and to, to hold someone else accountable and to have that energy that you have to, yeah. to drive your business is challenging, but I'm, I'm up for it. I, I, I'm in growth mode. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the last question is, uh, you know, where do you see your, 
where do you see the risks in the market uh, today? It could be market, economic, individual, personal, whatever it is. So I think the risk is when people get over levered and interest rates start going up and they're in negative cash flow. I think that's the biggest risk for, let's say, the market. Um, for someone like myself, it's just, you know, personally, a guys like me who are sort of hunters, like I love deal hunting and I can be a little bit scrambled at times, is scaling in, in the right organized way and building systems that actually are implemented and build a business. That's my goal in the next few years. As long as I stay the course, I'll be okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important for investors because a, a lot of the time we have a goal, then we start moving towards it and veer sideways. It's like, all right, that didn't work out. Let's move back into what we initially set. And I am guilty of that a lot of the times too. Well, it's exciting. There's a lot of opportunity. And and I just wanted to say one other thing. It really is worth it when you keep a system going that's working. So what I mean by that is, like, for example, uh, burring bungalows in Peterborough. I'm not going to completely drop that because I either want to flip or want to get into multi-units. I can't drop that because it's just a powerhouse. And it doesn't make sense to drop anything that's working because not everything does work at all times. So there's something to be said for rinse and repeating a strategy that works when you've built the right team. Because one thing that a lot of investors don't talk about is the equity you're building when you're building your teams, you know, the right property managers, the right contractors, and everyone else. Once you have that, I think it's your responsibility to stay in that market and, um, and, and until it fails you. Agreed. Yeah. There's a beauty in simplicity. And uh, sometimes we tend to overcomplicate things, but it, sometimes it's just easier to keep it simple, stupid, and just improve on those systems and make your money that way. And that's, that's what I'm all about too. Um, anyways, Jared, really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. Fantastic having you on, catching up, hearing a bit about your journey. You're up to big things and we're excited to see you continue to grow and scale at the flipping, wholesaling, and continuing to grow um, your portfolio. If people want to reach out to you, learn more about your journey or just connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah. So the best way is Instagram, Jared H55. If you're not on Instagram, get on it. That way you can see the videos. You can see some of the projects that I've done, a bit about my my family life and my hobbies. And yeah, that'd, that'd be a great way to connect. Awesome guys. So make sure to follow Jared, shoot him a message, show him some love. All of the links will be down in the show notes below. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support it, review it, review it. Um, go on Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star review um, or, or else we're just going to cancel the podcast altogether. <laughs> maybe. No, don't maybe. do that. <laughs> don't do that. All right, then go review it, guys. 250 by the end of the year. Take care, everyone. Until next time, invest smarter and live better.